Hi, Daniel here. This week's episode of The Ripple is sponsored by Deps, a private Maven repository service that I run. You can think of it as a private Clojars, just for your company to share your Clojure and Java dependencies. If you enjoy this podcast, consider supporting me by signing up for a trial at deps.co. Thanks. Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week I'm talking about ClojureScript with Antonio Montero, the creator of Lumo. Welcome to the show, Antonio. Hey, Daniel. It's really good to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, so probably, well, you're known for many things in the Clojure community, but the one that I wanted to start with was Lumo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what Lumo is, what the genesis of its creation was? Uh, yeah, get us started there. Yeah. So Lumo is a fast cross-platform ClojureScript environment that runs on uh, V8, the JavaScript engine by Google that runs in Chrome, and Node.js, which is based on V8. And what it allows you to do is to launch a ClojureScript REPL or even a fully-fledged environment in a few milliseconds. And the, the genesis of it was, well, there's a lot of motivations behind it, but one of the main motivations behind Lumo was my increasing frustration with Clojure's uh, startup time and even ClojureScript's startup time when compiled by Clojure. And so Lumo uses the ClojureScript uh, uh, optional self-hosting ability. And so it lets you ship the compiler with the distributed binary without having to ever start a JVM. And it was based at the time on uh, Plunk, uh, which is a, the, the same concept by, by Mike Fikes, who is very well known as well in the ClojureScript community. So where Plunk uses the JavaScript core engine, which is what runs in WebKit and Safari, Lumo runs on V8 and Node.js. So it lets you have access to all the libraries in basically the entire NPM ecosystem. Great. And so uh, I've heard you talk about all the libraries in NPM. And so do they just need to be kind of in the Node modules in the current working directory when you start Lumo? No, that's correct. So in fact, Lumo is from the point of view of, I suppose, the, me or, or any person that is develop, uh, developing Lumo itself. What happens during the, the, the Lumo compilation phase, I guess, is we actually compile all the C++ of V8 and Node.js and then inject a startup script that will land you in a ClojureScript REPL. So all the machinery behind loading node modules or finding package JSONs and all that is just there uh, because Node.js implements that. Nice. And so, you know, there's, there's always trade-offs with these kinds of things. So what are the trade-offs that, uh, that you accept when you go with Lumo? Yeah. So there are a bunch of trade-offs, some good and bad. Yeah, I suppose that's the definition of it. So starting with the, you know, the, the really cool advantages of using something like Lumo is you have a ClojureScript environment at your fingertips in less than 500 milliseconds. I think last time I checked, Lumo uh, started up in 200 milliseconds or less. And so that's that's really cool because, as we all know, JavaScript engines, they're mostly optimized for latency, so like time to first, I suppose, byte or executed, whereas uh, JV, uh, the JVM and, and uh, engines like the the .NET, what is it called? CLR core or CLR platform, yeah, are optimized for throughput. So as uh, like long running programs, 
uh, where the JIT kicks in and, and your program gets optimized and gets faster with uh, each function execution, I suppose. And so th- that's a trade-off right there. So Lumo compiles ClojureScript two times to 2.5 times slower than the JVM ClojureScript compiles ClojureScript. Right. I think in terms of execution speed, they're hand in hand because it's just, you know, once it's it runs, it's basically the, the engine that is executing JavaScript and there's no difference. Yeah. Just on that uh, no difference part, um, there, the JavaScript that's generated wouldn't be byte for byte identical, though, would it, with the GenSims that ClojureScript uses? Is that correct? Or Oh, that reminds me of another trade-off, which is in self-hosted ClojureScript, you can only use macros that are uh, written in a self-hosted compatible manner. And so those macros cannot have any calls to the JVM standard libraries. Because the ClojureScript compiler in the JVM is written in Clojure, and macros are expanded at compile time, so in the Clojure environment, you can actually use all the JVM machinery to write your macros in JVM ClojureScript, and none of that is available in self-hosted ClojureScript. Yeah. So uh, what, what was your question again? Uh, when the, the compiled JavaScript that comes at the end... How similar does it end up being? Well, I'm not sure if it's byte for byte identical. Um, it also depends on the optimizations that you're doing to your closure script. And so in the closure script REPL, Lumo only supports uh, non optimizations, so no optimizations at all, mm-hmm. which means your code is actually slower than, you know, if you're compiling with advanced Google Closure compiler optimizations uh, with JVM closure script. However, Lumo also supports um, that same compilation. So the, the, the reason why I call it an environment and not a solely a REPL is because you can also, uh, there's all, the, all the, the JVM bits that are in the JVM ClojureScript compiler. I've also ported them to self-hosted ClojureScript inside Lumo. And so you can actually point Lumo at a ClojureScript project. And if it is self-hosted compatible, you can compile it including with advanced optimizations. And that is thanks to the Google Closure compiler team having ported the Google Closure compiler to JavaScript. That sounds like a pretty big effort uh, to get that running. Yeah, uh, I think they used GWT, the Google Web Toolkit, because the Google Closure compiler is written in Java. So there's this monstrous piece of JavaScript code that is, I think, like nine megabytes of JavaScript. Wow. Yes, the Google Web Toolkit, that's a sort of a Java to JavaScript compiler, would you call it? I think so. I'm not too familiar with it. I know that's what it does, but I think there are some other limitations. Right. Yes, um, I can imagine that you know, they're quite different uh, platforms. Yeah, exactly. Because JavaScript doesn't have, you know, out of the box, doesn't have access to, say, uh, file system libraries or any I.O. of any kind, except, you know, printing to standard output or something. Mm. So there were some design decisions, and there are actually two different entry points in the Google Closure compiler compiled to JavaScript and the normal Google Closure compiler. But I think I think that's that's we could we could go on about that for for a long time. <laughs> uh, so, is there anything you're really proud of in Lumo that you you know that took a lot of work or was was a pretty clever uh, trick or hack that you did? Yes, I would say if. I was able to, you know, single out one thing. It is the ability to start really, really fast. 
And uh, the, the history behind that is uh, I was looking at Plunk uh, in the early days of Lumo when it wasn't uh, yet released. And Plunk, I think, used to start up in 600 milliseconds, maybe 700 milliseconds. And I, I don't know what the timings are now, but I knew I wanted to do a little better than that. And actually, Mike Fikes, the creator of Plunk, he pointed me towards uh, documentation on a feature that uh, the V8 uh, JavaScript engine has, which are called uh, custom startup snapshots. And so what custom startup snapshots let you do is give it a JavaScript file, and in Lumo's case, is the entire ClojureScript bundle that makes up the, the Lumo and that includes the ClojureScript standard library, which is huge, and all the namespaces that I ship so that they are readily available when you start a REPL. And so V8 lets you, you know, load that file uh, during the C++ compilation phase. It will load that file in memory, take a snapshot of the heap, and then output that to like a, a bytecode file, right? And then once your executable, your compiled executable starts up, it will just load that uh, bytecode file straight into the heap again. And then you don't have to parse or execute any JavaScript. And all the things that were in memory at uh, compilation time are already there. And so that's the clever trick or hack, if you will, that makes Lumo start really, really, really fast. So can you go into a little bit more detail of how that works? Because I've, uh, I've heard that and I'm just sort of curious, like, do you need to use a custom allocator to sort of say this is my, like which parts are going to be included or excluded in the, the heap? What platforms, you know, does it, does it work cross-platform? This works whenever you're compiling the V8 C++. And so if you give it this JavaScript file, and oh, okay, yeah. And so the detail on that is this JavaScript file can't have any calls to like Node.js APIs, right? Because those are not part of the V8 compilation process yet, right? It only knows about the standard ECMAScript globals. So V8 has its own REPL, which is called D8. And so you can actually load your JavaScript file in D8 to see if uh, there are going to be any errors when this file is loaded. And uh, those are fine as long as or the prohibited APIs are fine. Uh, as long as they are inside like closure scopes, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, like function closure scopes, because it only parses the top level. Uh, and so, what V8 does is 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 you know as part of its compilation process, it outputs this executable called MK snapshot, so make snapshot. And then further along in the compilation process, if you've provided this JavaScript bundle for it to load, it will run make snapshot on your provided JavaScript file. Uh, and if it succeeds in executing the JavaScript that you feed it, then it will output that bytecode file and then bundle it as part of your executable. And so early on, and well, I still do have some problems in CI from time to time uh, because the Lumo compilation process sometimes exhausts all the available memory in the CI virtual machines because this is a process <laughs> that kind of takes up a lot of memory and also adds a little bit of size to the generated executable. But that's that's a trade-off. You know, on the topic of trade-offs, that's another trade-off, which is, you know, trading space for startup time. And I think it's worth it in this case. Yeah. And so 
I guess this is sort of a bit of a theme that I've seen with Clojure and Clojure Script over time is that Clojure, you know, started on the JVM with, you know, the JVM can go a lot of places, but it can't go everywhere. And then Clojure Script sort of has expanded that reach and you can now get to more and more places. And then I sort of see Lumo as being, I guess, in that spirit of sort of going in different sort of places where you can't have a JVM compiler at all for some reason, or you you, you can't wear that that startup time. Uh, are there any kind of unique or interesting places you've seen Lumo being used? Totally. So kind of piggybacking on what you said, in its first, you know, in his first announcement of ClojureScript, Rich Hickey famously said that Clojure rocks, but JavaScript reaches, right? So that was the entire motivation for having ClojureScript at all. And I, I think I've heard David Nolan also say that that was the entire motivation for doing optional self-hosting ClojureScript at all, which is, as you said, and, and very well, that the JVM can only go some places, and there are places where it's you know banned or not meant to be used. The only use case, and now actually answering your question, and the the only use case that was kind of you know out of the ordinary where I've seen Lumo be used was in uh, my friend's uh, Victor Ericsson's startup, uh, Paloxa in Sweden, and so they're building this uh, smart pillbox for people that are on you know recurrent medication to adhere to their medications. And they're, they're building this, I don't know what the exact details are, but what he told me at the time was that they were either building or testing a part of the firmware with Lumo. And that was very interesting to me because I've never, I had never envisioned Lumo being used in, in such a scenario. Like I had never dreamed up that would, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's why I, I, I just love working on tooling like this is you know, it made, makes people want to experiment and it makes people use your tools in ways that you've never expected them to, to do. And that's so humbling. Yeah, um, I think, you know, it sort of makes me think about, you know, places where where you maybe don't want to compile, you don't want to have to compile the, the closure script ahead of time. Yeah. Where there's sort of maybe little scripts or possibly even like an AWS Lambda environment if your throughput is not yep. uh, you know, super important. Yep. I've also seen people use Lumo in, uh, what is it, uh, glitch.com? Ah, yeah. And so, so someone managed to write a, a glitch server in ClojureScript by using Lumo. And that kind of takes advantage of one of the original motivations behind Lumo as well, which is to have a ClojureScript uh, environment at your fingertips with you know one installation command. So in the case of Lumo, is if you say brew install Lumo or you know npm install Lumo dash cljs or I think someone packaged Lumo for Nix OS uh, recently. <laughs> you, you can just have a closure script REPL like with you know by running one command in your terminal and you know talking about you know a beginner experience. That's I think modesty uh, aside. One of the best beginner experiences I've seen in the Clojure community. I do know that uh, CLJ, the CLJ tool, is meant to address that as well. And yeah, it did. Yeah. But Lumo just has access to a whole ecosystem, which I think makes it even better. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the beginner 
beginner experience for Closure Closure Script has definitely probably been been one of the weaker spots over the years. And yeah, it's gotten a lot better. Yeah, uh, but certainly, totally. I guess it's when it, when I um, started doing some work for Day Eight. It was quite a few years ago. Now it sort of took us maybe like six months. Not that we were spending six months getting set up, but it took us six months before we felt like we were really comfortable. Like, yes, we've got our development environment dialed in and we've figured out, you know, these are the good plugins and tools and you know, things to it, like, it's, it's a fairly involved process, I think getting to that stage. Yeah. And so I've done a little bit of work in the closure script compiler too. And, and like one of the, even, even then, you know, or even there, I think the first bug that I attempted to solve was I, I basically didn't know how to build the closure script compiler and how, you know, how to test my changes but you know, I think we've we've come a long way. Mm, yeah, I think I've uh, used your work. Then uh, <laughs> I, I'm using those those scripts to to run and test uh, Closure Script Compiler. Mm-hmm. So, what's kind of the the next steps for Lumo? Where do you see it going in the future? Are there any open sort of features? So, at the time of this recording, I've I've you know the Defn podcast. I was on the Defn podcast episode 42, and I I highlighted that a little bit. So. As of now, I've officially stopped maintaining Lumo because all the, you know, the interesting technical challenges that I saw in it are, are solved. And I, I'm not really dedicating any time currently, any of my free time currently to the Clojure or ClojureScript ecosystem. So Lumo is actually looking for, for new maintainers. And I would encourage people that are listening to this podcast that are curious to know how Luma works to reach out to me and, you know, tell me that they would like to get a guided, you know, tour of the Luma code base and perhaps consider maintaining it going forward. And I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for your, you know, thanks for your work on getting it to where it is. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a monumental effort. Uh, that touches on something that I've been sort of, thinking about working on a little bit, uh, which is uh, CLJ Commons, which is sort of a, a relatively new community organization that I've been working on thinking about for quite a while now. You know, it's sort of had various iterations over time, but uh, it, one of the one of the projects, one of the first projects that it's uh, in CLJ Commons uh, was started by uh, Eric Assam, Sometimes known as Slipset, um, and it's sort of a, a place for maintaining the closure libraries that you know when when the authors have moved on or you know gone elsewhere, but they're still important libraries. People are still using them, but they just don't no longer have the time to. Hmm, I see. Take over them. So, how how long ago was this project started? Ah, uh, like within the month, I would say. So, oh, so very yeah, recently. Pretty pretty recent. Okay. Very recently, I, I yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about it for quite a long time, uh, and so uh, CLJ Commons, uh, the kind of the the sales pitch is kind of a community led project to build up the supporting infrastructure around Closure to make it a better experience for new closureists and existing people. So I can sort of see, you know, there's there's a, there's a bunch of things that Closure Core, you know, do and do well uh, with with the Closure language, but there's also kind of a set of stuff surrounding it. Which Cognitect, you know, just doesn't have time or effort or energy, yep. um, or possibly interest to do, which is totally fine. Uh, and so it's up to the community to do some of these things. Uh, so, yeah, I could definitely see Lumo 
being part of that if someone you know wanted to maintain it as part of the community you know i i wish i wish that that project uh goes forward i've uh i i've known of other communities that have uh, similar you know github organizations called you know project name that or language name dash community where they maintain um you know the the motivation is the same yeah, and and I guess the one caveat there is, yeah, you know, need someone to, you know, Lumo is, I don't think, a trivial library to, you know, to maintain. It's probably not. It's probably a little bit more effort than just, you know, updating the ClojureScript version, right? Every now and then, so it would definitely need somebody uh, interested. That could be anybody. It doesn't have to be, you know, if if you're interested and yeah, that could be anybody. And uh, as I said, I, you know, I'm open to guiding people through the code base. Most of the things are already automated. So I, you know, built scripts and releases. So there's basically no no work to be done there, and there's no new figuring out. I think. Right, and and I I should mention I didn't uh, <laughs> didn't bring this up um, just to kind of uh, strong arm you into uh, migrating it to, to CLJ Commons. Uh, <laughs> it was it just was uh, having to be. A related topic, but um, oh yeah, means, totally, yeah, you know, doesn't doesn't have to be <laughs> doesn't have to be uh, into that. So I see, yeah. So uh, another closure project that you've been involved in uh, was Ohm Next. Uh, I saw you know you've you've done a lot of work and writing mm-hmm. on Ohm Next. Uh, can you for people who you know don't aren't aware what what is Ohm Next? What was it next from? Yeah, give us give us the intro there. Ooh, yeah, you're putting me on the spot here now. It's been a while. Okay, let me let me see if I remember. So Ohm Next uh, or Ohm Ohm.core is the previous iteration of Ohm, which is this library started by David Nolan when React had just came out. Uh, and uh, Ohm attempted to apply the functional principles of Clojure and Clojure Script, one of which is persistent data structures, to the React uh, JS paradigm for building user interfaces. And Ohm Next is the second iteration of that idea. So the first idea was, I think, started in late 2013. And Ohm Next saw the light of day, I think, somewhere in mid-2015. And, or, or yeah, I think that's the right timeline. Do correct me in the show notes if I'm wrong. So Ohm Next attempted to do two things. So for one, it attempted to kind of fix or I guess make other design decisions or trade-offs, some things that people uh, had some issues with in the first version, such as I think there were problems. I I, I don't really know a lot about what those problems were, but were related to this thing called, uh, what is it, lenses, not lenses? Cursors. Cursors, yeah, which is, I think, the same principle. And I think people were, uh, or Open dot core components who are losing encapsulation, or you know, there was some problem with it. I can't exactly remember what they were, but I do know about the second thing that Omnex purported to do, or uh, which was to kind of distill the ideas of uh, GraphQL that had, I think, been announced recently, and Relay, which is a, a JavaScript library for uh, as a, a GraphQL client written in JavaScript. And also the idea, uh, the ideas by Falcor, this project by Netflix, and what all those projects were trying to solve at the time was how to build UIs that need non-trivial amounts of data from you know 
one or more remote endpoints and how to query for those kinds of data and only the data that uh, specific clients needed, uh, you know, according to mobile devices or in the case of Netflix, they have a bunch of other devices that they need support, including, but not limited to, you know, set up bo- uh, the, the TV boxes. I'm not sure what, what they're called. And, and so Omnext was once again trying to distill those ideas, but with a closure and closure script feeling and, you know, idioms. And uh, one of those was adding a queries to the UI components, and those queries were written in a datomic pole or very inspired by a datomic pole syntax. Nice. And so it man- managed uh, all the fetching and all the, you know, aggregation of data from the remote endpoints for you. So you can write uh, inside your component, sort of, here's the piece of data I want uh, inside you know, one very small, even like a single row in a table cell. Would you write it that? Yes, yes, exactly. So in, in, in the case of Omnext, and I apologize that my, my memory is not you know so clear anymore about because it, it's been a long time. But in the case of Omnext, every piece of data that your component needs is written in a query that is co-located with your component. So when you're writing your UI, you know exactly what that component is going to get as props, right? So React props. And the query describes exactly what the component will receive as props. And props are basically just the set of data that your component receives from the parent component and, and so on and so forth until it reaches the, the root component, which is the thing that has all the data. And so what's kind of the status of, of Omnext? Are you using it yourself in production somewhere? Yeah. So I work at Ladder. And Ladder is a company in California that is building a life insurance product. So what we do is we allow people to get instant decisions and get covered in, uh, instantly uh, for life insurance uh, so that they you know, can get that out of their plate. And we are using Omnext since late 2015, even when it was you know, one of the alphas, because uh, I think... Uh, our CTO had prototyped with a few different libraries. And at the time, uh, Omnext was just, you know, it presented itself as a very viable alternative to the problems that we're trying to solve. And so we have now a, <laughs> what we would consider a a legacy Omnext application three years later. Yes. Right. Uh, is there something else? Are you still using ClojureScript? in other places or what's kind of the, the non-legacy stuff? Oh, I, I just mean that it's legacy because uh, we, we adopted it in the alpha phase. And even though we kept upgrading Omnext, some of the decisions regarding data fetching and how we structured our UI is still very tied to that initial architecture. Ah, uh, right. In, in the initial alphas where... Uh, some of the features that are available today in Omnext were not available then. And because, you know, there's always features to implement and stuff to solve, we never got around to upgrading the architecture of our UI to take advantage of some newer features that came along later. Right. We do use Clojure and Clojure Script across the entire stack. Yes. 
And so Omnext is sort of, you know, fairly stable at this point. It looks like, you know, it's sort of, you know, there's not a lot of activity going on, but, you know, people are able to use it as, as it is. Yeah. I think, I think Omnext is and has been very stable um, since a couple of releases ago. Uh, the, the, the major lacking point, and, and I think the reason why it never got uh, too much adoption is, I would say it's very hard to get started with. And there was never proper documentation. And that, that was some, something that I attempted to write in some, some of the blog posts that I wrote. But I would I would argue that Omnext was always targeted at some people who were already familiar with ClojureScript and not beginners. So people that were already you know comfortable with the language and ready to dive into the code base uh, in order to get started using it. And I don't think it ever got past that point. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I do see you know there's there's a reasonable amount of uh, documentation here, but I, you know, I know from Looking at Omnext, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot there, just a lot of conceptual stuff. Yeah, so I think last time I checked, there's a lot of you know API documentation, but there was never a master document that explained what the general architecture was or what the you know the theory of Omnext. Yeah, exactly. In in the vein that I think um, Reframe has, you know, I think the Reframe project is known for having. A very very good documentation, and and so which I think that's that's why a lot of people are using it, and so that's that's a great merit that it has. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, and I I think I've mentioned this uh, before. I, I forget where or when, but um, you know Mike Thompson, who's the you know the author of of Reframe, and uh, I contract for Day Eight. Uh, mm-hmm. He he's probably spent ten times as much work on the documentation than code. Sounds like a lot. Like when I say that, I'm like that can't be true. But then when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, he probably probably has. Uh, no, that, <laughs> yeah, I can certainly believe that, and I think increasingly so. And uh, I've listened to the episode with Martin about uh, CLJ doc. I think documentation is uh, more than ever a very important part of any project that intends to be successful. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, and and the other kind of idea or thing that's been sort of floating around in the back of my mind is that like programming languages are kind of no longer defined just by by the language like it's it's the tooling around it that can be so critical to whether it's you know whether you adopt it or whether you just give up in frustration uh yeah and uh, yeah I, th- I think i think lumo you know was like a good example of improving that state i, I would agree with that in my opinion i've i've been thinking on and off uh, about or at least about a, a part of this problem for for a couple of years and the the conclusion that i've or what i'm going with right now is that not only tooling but you know the beginner experience is also more than ever as a very very a very very important thing uh because i think your tool and your programming language can be designed for experts or it can be you know very powerful and very flexible but if you don't have a an experience for the you know the the person that comes into your website downloads or installs your programming language or your tool and can be productive within a matter of minutes you know 
it could be the, 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 the very simplest thing. But if you don't make that a priority and you're not always reviewing your documentation and your installation process and uh, your getting started experience, it's never going to see uh, wide adoption. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And that, I guess, kind of brings us a little bit to what you've been working on more recently. And uh, I know I've been, I follow you on Twitter and I see you talking quite a lot about OCaml and uh, especially Reason um, seems to have a, a lot of focus put on the tooling and beginner experience. Yes, totally. So do you want to give people an overview of what these two things are, how they're related? Yeah, sounds good. So OCaml is a functional, well, it's actually a multi-paradigm systems language developed, I think, in the 80s. So it has a, a 30 plus years of you know, uh, research and development. And Reason is a, an effort started by Jordan Walk, the creator of ReactJS, to make OCaml, I would say, uh, familiar and easy to get started with. <laughs> because OCaml is yep. a really cool language but it is a language that is from the ML family of languages. So it is strongly typed. And ML is, is stands for meta language. And so it has the, the Hendley-Milner type system, which you know people usually call a, a strongly typed language. And OCaml syntax, uh, as any other language, I think, that I'm aware of from the ML family, has this language, the syntax that is not very appealing or not very familiar to people who've always programmed in the Algol family of, of languages. Mm. And so what Reason is trying to do is to bridge this gap between uh, OCaml and DML's uh, syntax that a lot of people feel, feel uh, discouraged by. And so basically putting, it, uh, putting a, a nice syntax on top of this uh, language and toolchain that actually is, is still there. So I'm not sure if I've explained myself very well, but no, I think that makes sense. Yeah, so so Reason and OCaml are actually the same language, if you will. And, and something very interesting about the OCaml compiler is that it's very, very pluggable at every or at most compilation phases. And so you can simply write... Uh, and what ReasonML just did was write a parser and printer that output uh, that is a front-end to the OCaml compiler. And so at the low level, what ReasonML is doing is parsing its syntax and printing to a binary representation of the AST. Okay. And that's what the OCaml syntax frontend also prints to. I see. So in theory, you, you could write your own syntax for OCaml if you wished. <laughs> I see. Uh, so Reason doesn't does it introduce any new libraries or features that that are not in OCaml or is it just sort of a, a more palatable syntax so i don't think like thinking of that just now to answer your question i don't think it does because it's essentially the same language right mm. they're also interchangeable so you can have both ml and re which is the reason extension for reason files you can have both uh, files in your project. You can uh, consume libraries interchangeably, uh, and the, the the build systems will know if you're using. You know, the build systems basically operate at the level of the AST, right? So as long as you have your ML and your Reason files, uh, and that 
those front ends generate a later stage compatible AST, you can just interchangeably use one or the other. So libraries written in Reason can be used by OCaml programmers and uh, vice versa. Nice. Uh, and so is that it's kind of analogous to the Elixir and Erlang? I think there's probably some differences there, but is that a, a reasonable way to think about it at a high level? I'm not too familiar with Erlang or Elixir, but uh, I know they both compile to the Erlang uh, VM, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if they're analogous to that, as in Elixir is just a nice syntax on top of Erlang, or if it's right, or or if that is an analogy to the Closure or Kotlin or Java compiling to JVM bytecode, right? Because those are very different languages and paradigms. Sure. Yeah. No, uh, I think it's possibly somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think it would be more analogous to JavaScript and CoffeeScript. Right. Yep. Okay. In in that the the reason does not impose any new thinking or any new paradigms on top of OCaml. I see. It just intends to use the same thinking, but in a different syntax. Right. And so that's talking about the front end of the compiler. And can you talk about the back end? What kind of targets can yeah? What kind of things can OCaml target? That's something that is really really cool which is OCaml can compile so first of all it can compile down to JavaScript which is what a lot of people are using ReasonML to do I would argue that the majority of users of Reason are using uh, BuckleScript which is the OCaml and Reason compiler to JavaScript to to write uh, UIs and then you can also compile OCaml and Reason to portable OCaml bytecode that can run in the OCaml runtime, mm-hmm. I think. and But you can also generate a native, and this would not be portable, right? Because you, you, a native machine code, so a native executable for, say, Linux or for macOS that is, you know, not portable across platforms. Mm. And something that really, really pleases me about using OCaml is that in one way or the other, we've, we've been using a, a VM for, to write our programs, especially in the Clojure world and people that you write ClojureScript or JavaScript, our code never runs you know, close to the bare metal, <laughs> as the elders would say. <laughs> uh, and, and, and OCaml um, can compile down to, to machine executable code. And, and so it runs really, really fast. And I'm really excited about you know, programming in a safe language that can compile down to something that executes really fast. Nice. Uh, so I guess that kind of brings us to the other thing I saw you working on recently, which was a new layer, would we call it, for AWS Lambda using OCaml? Yeah, I call it a runtime, but I'm not sure if it could be used as a layer. So for some context yeah. for, for our listeners is AWS just had their conference uh, very recently uh, AWS reInvent. And previously on AWS Lambda, which is the, their function as a service offering, you could only run certain languages and runtimes. So I think they had support for Node.js, Python maybe, and Go, .NET, and Java. Maybe some, some other that is failing me right now. They had PowerShell. 
they they did yeah oh wow yeah it was an unusual one yeah <laughs> yeah that's unusual and and so they they just announced at their conference support for custom runtimes and what this means is that people they, they've opened up their internal api and people are free to write their own runtime for uh, running uh, func- uh, for invoking functions in their favorite programming language on AWS Lambda. And paired with that announcement, they released a runtime for Rust that lets you run Rust on AWS Lambda. And so, okay, and then there's the concept of layers, which, if I understood correctly, are reusable pieces of infrastructure or binaries that you want to have available inside your Lambda contexts, which you can distribute inside your company or even publicly so that other people can use the binaries that you provided in your layers in their own functions. I know this is kind of confusing, but it's also very new to me. Um, In the case of a compiled language like OCaml or Rust, I don't think you could have a layer. Okay. Because your, your, your runtime would need to be compiled alongside your binary. So they would run in the same process. Therefore, I think that's why they made the distinction between layers and runtimes. So for example, you could have a layer for Python 3 or a layer for Node.js, you know, some version that they do not support, but you need a runtime for a compiled language because the runtime would live in the same process as the function that you're uh, compi- uh, linking against. Right. Okay. And so what what I did just this weekend, and you know I, I don't think I've been excited about a project or this excited about a project since Lumo, is I wrote a custom AWS Lambda runtime for OCaml. Hmm. And what this is is basi- so I basically took the their open the 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 AWS Labs open source implementation of their Rust runtime. And I, I try to port it to OCaml. And this is something that amazed me is like, because in AWS Lambda, you're built by, the, uh, by every 100 milliseconds that your function takes to execute, mm-hmm. right? I wanted the runtime to have as little overhead as possible so that people, you know, so that I'm not <laughs> wasting dollars for people who are running their functions on AWS Lambda. And I had initially written the runtime and I was fairly happy with it. And my, uh, you know, a simple echo function ran in, I think, 20 to 50 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. But then I ported, because there's, well, implementation detail is that there's a, a HTTP client that is making post requests to the AWS Lambda public API. And I, I, I just recently ported uh, the, the HTTP client to a, an OCaml HTTP client that is uh, more performant. Mm-hmm. And right now, like the, 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 the echo function takes anywhere from one millisecond to 10 milliseconds. Wow. And so on the topic of compiling to bare metal, I think that's probably as close as we can, <laughs> can get to it, even in a, a VM scenario like the, the Lambda sandbox. So can you walk through kind of the life cycle of the, the runtime and then pushing the code? Like what's that, this is compiled code that's running on the lambdas? Yeah. So in this case, um, the OCaml runtime has to be distributed as a library through the OCaml package manager. Mm-hmm. 
and people will link their functions against the runtime library that I am distributing. And then AWS Lambda allows them to upload a zip file containing this execute this it uh, so far I've been only compiling it uh, as a statically compiled binary but I think you can use like a, a docker container with the Amazon Linux distribution and co- and dynamically link it against that but then you can you can upload your your zip file to AWS lambda and make it react to so invoke your function as a reaction to certain events I'm not too familiar with I don't think I've said this, but it's, it's, I've been only playing with AWS Lambda for a very short amount of time. But uh, the, one that I'm mo- the, the, the one event that I'm mostly, mostly interested in is uh, what they call the API gateway. Yep. And what this is, is they, they, they route HTTP requests to your Lambda functions. And then your Lambda functions are basically just a, I mean, in enclosure terms, you could think of it as a ring handler, right? You have a request, and then it's your responsibility to produce a response. Great. And so, so that in that zip file that you upload, you're uploading. You're not uploading like reason source code or uh, OCaml source code. No, you're yes, you're compile. You, you, in this case, I in in the case of compiled languages, you're not uploading source code. You're uploading an already compiled executable. Great. Yeah. Uh, linked against the the lambda runtime which is which is what will start your program and, and interface with uh, the AWS lambda apis you know to to pull for events uh, get those events in a, a a data structure that is fed into your function and the other responsibility that it has is to get the response from your invocation and then putting it back in the, you know, calling the AWS Lambda API again with the response of your invocation. Nice. Not sure if that is clear. No, I, th- I think uh, I think I, I get the idea. Uh, so in a contrast, someone could write a, a Lumo runtime. I guess, I guess it would be a runtime where you could just upload your ClojureScript source files directly in that Lumo. That is actually a very, very cool idea. I think in this case, it could even be a layer. So you could provide a layer for AWS Lambda, which would have the Lumo binary in the path and that it knows how to execute CLJS files that are in a certain directory. So what what a layer gives you is just a a binary in, in some context. And then you can tell it to execute the function that you upload with that binary. Right. Uh, so in theory, you could write something like that and distribute it publicly across all the AWS data centers. Yeah, that's that's a very cool idea that I had not thought about. Yeah, I I, I guess I like I like that. Yes, uh, someone 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 make that. <laughs> I, I like the idea of just being able to push the source code and and that's it. Kind of not need to compile it or run it through CI or yeah anything like that. Uh, so can you also walk us through uh, GraphQL um, because you've been doing some work there with uh, typed GraphQL and OCaml and that sort of stuff. We've had um, Howard Lewis Ship talking about GraphQL. Uh, we had Hannah Henderson talking about how CircleCI is using GraphQL. I saw this, I think, maybe three, possibly more talks at 
uh, closure conge, which are talking about GraphQL or mention GraphQL pretty heavily. Uh, it seems like it's you know, it's definitely of this moment. Yeah, GraphQL is very popular. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. So GraphQL, as Howard put it in very well in the episode of the REPL where he was in, is this query language for your APIs, which was released by Facebook, I think in 2015. And so I initially, I only came across the ideas behind GraphQL because I was working on Omnext. But then for me, Omnext started to have some limitations that GraphQL did not impose. And so I started really digging into GraphQL and what it provided. And I've recently been very, very excited about it. And so when I started doing a little bit more OCaml the, coming from Clojure, I wanted to have in OCaml the same kind of experience that I had in Clojure with, with or without GraphQL. And I go a lot um, more into this in a talk I recently gave at Small FPConf, which is this conference that is co-located with ClojureTray in Finland. And basically what I, what I found in my research was, or let me back up a bit, and some things that I was looking to have in OCaml that I, I, I always took for granted in Clojure was, say, sharing data structures between the backend and the frontend just effortlessly, uh, either because of reader conditionals or uh, uh, the transit data format. And I found out that for one reason or the other, mostly because types are really cool to have in, inside your program, but things really get start to getting a little bit more complicated uh, at the boundary. So once you, ha- you make an, a network request, you're just you know sending some bytes over the wire and you, you, you don't really ship any type information with your request. Hmm. So I wanted to have the same kind of niceties that I had in Clojure in OCaml. And the way I found out how to make it work was to use GraphQL because GraphQL already enforces a contract between both the requesting end and the, the consumer and the provider, you know, the client or the server. And so I found out that I could just have a shared set of modules in OCaml that I would use. And so those modules would declare types that I would use either on my front-end OCaml code or my uh, back-end OCaml code. And because GraphQL was tying all that together, the types were still preserved. And one other thing that I found out was how the... Because GraphQL is backed by a typed schema. So kind of like how, how Datomic is also backed by a schema that it, that is typed. Um, you need to declare which entities in Datomic language or which objects in GraphQL language you, you, you have in your schema ahead of time and what the members are and what their types are. Uh, I found out that the GraphQL type system paired really nicely with the OCaml type system. <laughs> and that's when I came across this library called OCaml GraphQL Server which lets you define your GraphQL schema in pure OCaml code. So GraphQL has recently standardized their schema definition language, right? which is a language similar to how you write GraphQL queries, 
that lets you write your schema. And then you need to provide a parser for it and convert that into a schema. But in OCaml, that would have some disadvantages because you'd be parsing a schema at runtime and then generating some code where on the fly or, or generating your schema on the fly, which because it's a, a type language, you know, a compile time type language, you'd lose a lot of type information in that process. So the, the trade-off that OCaml GraphQL Server embraced was to let you define your GraphQL schema and pure OCaml code. And what it guarantees through some type trickery and, and magic, to me at least, is that once your program compiles, your schema is guaranteed to be valid and the requests that come in, the queries that you issue or the mutations that you issue to the GraphQL server are also guaranteed to have the correct types as per the GraphQL contract. Nice. So this was kind of mind-blowing to me at the time and something that I really find I find really cool. Yeah. So is there any, I guess you wouldn't necessarily need any runtime sort of bounds checking or boundary checking if you've got your compile time guarantees there. Right. Because or there, there's still some runtime validation that is needed, but it's either not there yet or you can turn it off. Because on the OCaml front end uh, part, there's also this library that will fetch the schema, the GraphQL schema from the server that you're developing against. And then will guarantee that at compile time you're not you're not fetching anything from the server that does not exist. And it also knows how to deserialize, in this case, the JSON that you get from the network to the correct OCaml types. And this is all enforced at compile time, which means there's a lot of runtime code that you just simply don't need to write. And what seems kind of, (laughs) this part seems especially magical to me is that your GraphQL queries are, are arbitrary. Like it's not like, it can sort of yeah it, so it, yeah um right <laughs> having trouble this is kind of similar to the concept of macros that we are used to in closure script and so the one of the other pluggable parts of the ocaml compiler is the preprocessor extensions ppx for short and ppx allows you to kind of plug into the one phase of the compilation process, I I forget which, and it allows you to at least extract some information about the the, the program that you're writing. And in the case of GraphQL PPX, so the GraphQL preprocessor extension, what it does on the front end is you write a query and the the PPX goes and preprocesses this query. And because it has type information about the entire GraphQL schema that your server has. It can generate the OCaml types and data structures, and it can deserialize the uh, the JSON that comes from the wire into those types and data structures automatically without you having to do anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I know how I know how this sounds. And you know, I will tell you it is at least for me, it is that awesome. <laughs> I can share a link in the show notes of the ex- uh, the experience of developing a simple front end with uh, OCaml and GraphQL, where 
the person narrating the video, the video is, you know, saying, well, I'm making this field. This field is not optional, but I'm going to query it like it was. And then I'm going to get a compile time error. And then I'm going to, you know, ask for a field that is not in the schema on my server schema. And I'm also going to get a compile time error saying that field does not exist. And so these kinds of uh, compile time guarantees is part of the reason why I uh, still enjoy doing OCaml very much. Yeah, that seems that seems very powerful. One other thing that I've uh, seen you kind of involved in mentioning is uh, a cloud hosting service called Zite. Do you want to talk a little about what what Zite is? Why they're interesting? Yeah. So this is this comes back to the topic of uh, lambdas and. I had no previous experience with AWS Lambdas prior to kind of diving into Zite and their now service. And recently when I was developing the OCaml runtime for AWS Lambda, I, th- I think we can agree that the AWS CLI or and then the AWS GUI is kind of a, a mess. There's like so many things in the screen and like every time I'm trying to set up something in AWS, be it with Terraform or any other, uh, or even through the, the the graphical user interface, there's so much stuff happening on my screen that I, I, I it's so hard to get started. And so what Zite does, and their now 2.0 offering does, is they take your code and they have a standard and open source uh, set of builders. And they will build your code according to the builders that you specify. And they will just output AWS lambdas, which, by the way, are an implementation detail. And they will add DNS, CDN, and uh, a bunch of other goodies on top of your lambdas, which are then routed from the public internet as well. So at the basis, it's setting up some kind of API gateway, the thing that we talked about earlier, and the routing from the API gateway to your lambdas, as well as all the other stuff, CDN, HTTPS, all that stuff that they provide out of box for you with a single click. It's basically their terminal utility that reads your configuration file and goes and deploys all that to the cloud to a bunch of different regions. And so their mission is, I think, to make cloud computing as accessible as mobile computing or something, and you know, I'm not sponsored by them or anything, <laughs> but I, I, I'm just I, such a huge fan of their mission because it, it makes deploying all this stuff that I've been recently very excited about uh, so easy. Yeah, it's a very cool service, and um, I've experienced that uh, <laughs> that same pain with with Terraform. In fact, I tried to I tried to create a lambda with Terraform on AWS. I mean, I, right. I achieved it, but man, that was a lot of code just to get like a, a single right. HTTP endpoint. And wh- whenever whenever I'm trying to, to get something, you know, on the public internet, what I want to focus on is writing my code and not spend at least, you know, one to two hours figuring out how to deploy <laughs> that and like all the infrastructure that is needed to, you know, say hello world to, to everyone on the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely... A bit of a bit of a hassle. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on and sharing what you've been up to, what you're interested in now. Uh, I mean, it's I have to say it's it's a bit of a loss to not have you sort of applying your 
ingenuity into the closure community uh but i'm sure that everyone in okmore communities you know very happy and benefiting from you doing all the things you're doing there uh thanks a lot for coming on and well thank you yeah it's my pleasure and thanks for having me on uh, no worries all right well uh i'm gonna keep following along very closely with what you're what you're up to all right see you later see ya